Boy Scouts of the Air in Belgium by Gordon Stewart Chapter 2 The Missing Professor The boys made quick work of the informal decision of their impromptu chairman. With one accord, they piled their belongings back on the bench. Then they went out into the open air, Bob in the lead. For some minutes, they stood watching the course of the train. It swayed dangerously from side to side, but full steam was on. Evidently, those in charge were aware that time was the essence of the occasion. Hans was the only one of the group who could not stand still. He hopped about anxiously, mumbling gloomy words and scanning all points of the compass. Once he ran back from the extreme end of the platform, where he'd been studying the streets lying before him like an open map, to exclaim, The Germans are all through the upper town. Yes, and look over there, suggested Bob. He pointed, and his comrades crowded close to gaze in the direction of his index finger. The train had just cleared the end of a long but low trestle work covering a marshy stretch at the end of the freight yards. Just in time to miss it, hey? piped Ned, excitedly as his eyes took in the new sight. What a scene for a moving picture. Nearly a hundred uniformed soldiers were running across a flat stretch toward the trestle. Their purpose was manifest. The train had swung out on a free track beyond the yards, and it looked like unobstructed progress ahead. The group of soldiers massed and then spread over the trestle. They seemed to center at about the middle of it. Then, after working about one spot, they retreated back the way they had come. Boom! came a dull, heavy sound. There was a splotch of fire, smoke, and slivered timbers. And then, as the haze cleared away, a great gap was visible in the trestle work. That settles it, I'm thinking, said Tom. No further going or coming by rail. We won't reach France in a hurry now, observed Miles. Oh, I don't know. The walking is good, remarked Ned lightly. If you're let walk, suggested Bob, you know we've read about just this kind of doings, and we can guess what this means. And that, exclaimed Miles almost in a shout. In the open street beyond the depot entrance, there was a sharp clatter, and the boys saw a company of soldiers pass near, and then away down a side street on a double-quick run. The walking might be good, as Ned had observed, but the question of being let made Miles serious and Bob pensive. He might well be, but there was a heap to think of. It was not going to be easy to do any walking beyond narrow limits that would soon be prescribed. Walking was a decided feature with all four of the boys. The picture of a free and open hike was not, however, in their minds just now. It was only in their memories that they could revive their past hiking exploits. These had been many, and to them memorable. It seemed only a small space to the span. Their departure from a quiet Ohio village, their arrival in a quaint Belgium town, Variety and enjoyment had been the program all along the line. The war element that had come under their notice during the past week had been flavored with a certain species of pleasurable excitement. 
It's all right, spoke up Ned abruptly. But how about the professor? Yes, there's the nugget of the present proposition, said Bob, a trifle anxiously. He set the time himself when we were to meet here, and he is usually prompt. The situation has got skittish, and we don't know where he is. Fellows, you know his great maxim, system and order before everything. I have a suggestion to make. Miles, try to keep Hans from having a fit. Hans alone of the group was nervous, if not really scared. He kept moving about uneasily. More than once, in three rapid linguistic demonstrations, he had proclaimed the state of his feelings. His interests were not those of the others. Hans was loyal and good-hearted and all that, but his position was entirely and essentially that of a mercenary. It was at Paris that Professor Silas Dean, B.A., had come across Hans. Originally, he had been directed to an expert veteran guide and interpreter who bore the proud distinction of intimately knowing every corner of Europe. The professor's program for himself and his young companions was to do foreign countries right. For that purpose, he needed a competent guide. He had a smattering of German, and he could read French, but he could not speak it understandingly to a native. He was greatly disappointed when the old guide informed him that his days of bustle and activity were over. However, there was the son, Hans, trained up to follow his father's profession. A little coaching, and he would do. The professor was dubious for a spell, but meantime Bob and the others had formed a closer acquaintance with Hans. They found him agreeable and accommodating. He had his whimsies, and he was indolent at times, but he took a boyish view of things. Hans was engaged. He began his convoy, and they passed the frontier, missing nothing of importance as to points of interest. Hans knew little about them personally, but a well-thumbed notebook of his father was a big help. At Earl, the route had been blocked. The war had become a settled fact. Anxious as the professor was, to view the beauties of Antwerp and inspect the great cathedral magnificence of Reims. He did not dare to run into the danger that was surely approaching as the Germans swept across the country. The scurry of a rapid tour across southern Belgium and a diversion among Swiss cantons was blocked out and agreed upon. The day set for this change in their plans had been nearly a week back. Then, quite casually, Hans led the professor up against a learned old antiquarian and earl. The latter was a proud possessor of some antiquities that, at first sight, fairly enraptured the professor. There were manuscripts and inscriptions, the like of which the professor had never seen before. The result was what might have been expected. Day succeeded day, and the professor was gone from morning until night, gloating over rare treasures of art and literature, filling his wise old head with more and newer wisdom. The boys had been left to themselves. There was no lack of objects and doings to interest them, however. They put in the time pleasantly and profitably enough. There were hikes to distant castles and old mills and famous battlegrounds of the past. Hans got crippled and groaned over the strain of a sharp ten-mile sprint on many an occasion. Then Ned would get out his pack kit and Miles his hiker's kit and Tom his ditty kit, and they would instruct Hans in the art of drying wet shoes by filling them with heated oats. 
or show him what salt and water would do for tired feet, or buckle on a marching strap and teach him the bent-pull stride. It was quite a revival of home service, where Bob had won the athletic badge and was a patrol leader. The boys wore the Boy Scout uniforms, and they felt a good deal of pride in the pleased comments of intelligent persons who recognized the service from which they had read, and from pictures they had seen in the newspapers and magazines. We'll initiate you into the Boy Scouts, Hans, when we get back to Paris, Miles had laughingly declared more than once. Yes, you'll be ten times the guide you are now when you get through with us, Ned had added, and just now Bob suspected some new mischief as Ned took Tom and Miles aside, and they put their heads mysteriously together in a serious discussion of some plan that had presented itself to their attention. Finally, they seemed to reach a decision and separated and came towards Bob. See here, Bob, observed Ned, acting as the spokesman of the trio. We've made ourselves a special committee to act in a case of exigency. You are appointed by a unanimous vote. What to do, may I ask? Half-smiled Bob. As Deputy International Scout Master, we can let things slide and we think we're the salt of the earth and that no one will dare to bother us, but I don't fancy the Germans will give us any special diploma to ramble as we please. I guess not, and we'll soon find it out, too, proclaimed Miles. We're in a mess, and we won't wiggle out any easier than the natives will, asserted Tom. So, continued Ned, there's got to be a head and tail to things, and you're elected to be the head. I accept the responsibility, said Bob appreciatively. You're the wise one of the bunch. Here, here, piped Miles. You've passed all the home degrees, so we look to you for orders. Very well, nodded Bob agreeably. First thing, let us get our traps in order. You, Tom, and Miles, attend to that and wait here on the chance that the professor may show up. That's sense, com commended Tom. Ned and I will go back to the guest house, went on Bob. Hans, you had better come with us. I am not afraid, observed Hans, with a great show of bracing up. We had better find out if they know anything about the whereabouts of the professor back at our hotel, resumed Bob, as they left their two companions. It's strange his trunk didn't come, said Ned. You know he arranged about that first thing this morning. He was to make a flying visit to his antiquarian friend and join us at the depot. Of course we must locate him, responded Bob, and there came a slight shade of uneasiness into his face. As they left the vicinity of the depot, things had changed very greatly since they had started for there three hours before. There were few people in the streets. All the stores were closed and barricaded. Indeed, the greater part of the population had left Earl on the three trains that had gone out since that morning. The houses were closely shuttered and looked deserted. At some windows, a pale, scared face would peer out furtively. Whole companies of soldiers marched swiftly across the town. The boys evaded them where possible. Where they became hedged in, they entered a doorway and kept silent and submissive till the soldiers, stern-looking and impressive, had passed by. Here we are, observed Bob, with a relieved and hopeful feeling. 
as they at length turned a corner and came in view of the little hotel where they had been guests for the past few weeks. Why? cried Ned, looking all over its front. It's shut up. I believe they have deserted it. Just then, from a side lane, a wagon attached to two horses came rapidly along the side of the building and started for the next corner. The driver was a soldier, in uniform. Three others were behind the seat, and in the middle of the wagon was what looked like a box or chest on which sat two others. The horses circled into the street, past the boys who had halted, and wheeled along to the next corner so rapidly that it was quickly pulling out of sight. "'Ah, look! Truly I see! I see!' exclaimed Hans, and made a spring forward as if to pursue the wagon. "'The professor! He hires me! He pays me!' "'Hold on!' demurred Bob, grabbing the excited lad by the arm, and halting him with a sharp jerk. "'What do you see?' "'The professor?' questioned Ned. "'No!' shouted Hans, struggling free and darting down the middle of the street in hot pursuit of the fast-disappearing vehicle. "'In the wagon! The professor's trunk!' 